It's S in Hell, a look back at Saturday Night Live with your hosts, Matt and Keith. Brought to you by Lion's Den Audio Theater. Like and subscribe to Lion's Den Audio Theater for more Lion's Den goodness. And here are your hosts, Keith and Matt. Saturday Night Live, Season 2, Episode 22. Starring Buck Henry, originally aired on May 21st, 1977. Hello, everyone. It is the tail end of Season 2. My name is Keith, this is S.N. Hell, and with me as always, my good buddy Matt. Hello, Matt. Hey, Keith. Happy end of Season 2. Happy end of Season 2 to you as well. And with us tonight, uh, one of our most prolific third chairs, it's our good buddy Mark. Hello, Mark. How's it going, guys? So tonight, Buck Henry's out for his fourth time. Uh, he's the first one to hit for hosting gigs. I'm jacked. I love Buck episodes. I'm pretty pumped. Uh, I only got to see the one with him before, but it was a uh, it was a good time, and he really blends in with the cast well. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, stars in my favorite Gary Weiss film. Yes, he does. Yeah, the toilet seats. Mm-hmm. So in our musical acts tonight, there are two. It's a uh, Jennifer Warnes and Kenny Vance, and we'll talk about them when we come to them. So uh, let's start with the show here. We have the cold open, and it's Jimmy Carter fireside chat. So what's going on here is Jimmy, Roslyn, and Lillian Carter are in the White House, and they're in gray jogging suits because they are pedaling a bike that powers the SNL broadcast. As one tires out, they uh, they switch up, and the broadcast starts to fade. It goes a little gray. Jimmy, played by Dan, of course, and uh, Roslyn, played by Lorraine. They wake up Miss Lily, who is played by Gilda, and get her to pedal the bike. She's unable to get on it quickly. As Jimmy and Rosalind try to continue, Lillian says she's getting faint. Jimmy finishes up his message to the uh, audience as Lillian faints. The picture starts to die out, and then it cuts back to Lillian on the bike, and she says, live from New York. I thought this was okay. This was pretty good. I mean, if you're going to do your political stuff at the top, get it over with. This was all right. I thought it was pretty good. I I like Dan Aykroyd's Carter. There's something about his smile that I find slightly unnerving. The way he just looks off into the distance with it. It's a a borderline sociopathic. But I thought the sketch was pretty cute. Uh, I really loved their jogging suit. The the added visual effect is nice. It was a little ambitious. Yeah, maybe I do think it was a little ambitious. I like when they try new things. And I thought Gilda was especially good. Yeah, I quite like this. You know, it's not going to set the world on fire or anything, but there was something very charming, like you said about it. The fact that they had their names on their jogging suits really cracked me up for a second. <laughs> There's a, a weird creepiness for sure about that smile that is unsettling in, in a in a very comedic way. And and yeah, the, the tech stuff was kind of neat to see them playing with that. So we go to the intro and the audience is on fire for this. They're clapping along to the music. The only thing that was really notable here is that Don Pardo announces that Michael O'Donoghue will be joining us. So, Matt, you've become quite a big O'Donoghue fan over the last two years. Are you excited? Of course. I love uh, I loved seeing his name uh, in the credits and the bright light. I didn't know anything about him when we started this podcast, but through discussions with you and just experiencing his work on the show, definitely a fan. So very excited to see him. And again, I'll recommend Dennis Perrin's uh, Mr. Mike book. Buck comes to home base and it's decorated with a uh, what looks like a coat rack, a cot, uh, a garbage can. Buck actually takes the gum out of his mouth and sticks it on the post. Says he doesn't have much that he can do that hasn't already been done. He's been out here four times. 
So NBC says he can do whatever he wants. Buck says he's going to base the episode around pornography. He shows that he has whips and chains, and the garbage can is actually a, a big can of cottage cheese. Uh, Lauren says it's okay if Buck does a live sex act on Saturday Night Live. The booth concurs, and the censor also says it's okay. Buck surveys the audience, uh, looking for someone to invite up to have live sex with him. They stop on uh, Karen Roston, who is dressed as a nun. Then we go to uh, Edie Baskin, who's dressed as a dominatrix, and uh, he passes on her as well. And then he goes to a very attractive woman, who I couldn't identify sitting in the audience, and chooses her. The large man next to her mistakes it for him being the one that's picked. And he goes up, picks up Buck, puts him on the couch, and does a very awkward dry hump. Holy Lord, this is strange, but it was a lot of fun. I got a big laugh out of it. I guess kudos to the guy for the enthusiasm with which he lifted Buck Henry and then started humping him on a cough. This was a lot of fun. I really kind of enjoyed this, and I can't see anyone but Buck Henry doing this sketch. Buck's look and like seeming sort of nerdy demeanor really sets it up well. It felt like for a second that he was maybe trying to play chicken with Lauren, like Lauren wasn't going to let him. I thought that's where the joke was going, but then when it took off, I laughed really hard at the nun and like the dominatrix with the eye patch was good. And the, and the, the bucket of cottage cheese was just so random that that got me pretty good too. And it was a, a solid ending for what, what the, the whole joke was. So yeah, this was good. I have a few thoughts. Uh, first of all, I guess I'll lead with, I didn't like it as much as you guys, but it was okay. Buck Henry has such a natural charisma. He's obviously so comfortable out there on the stage just doing what he's doing. He's not even looking at cue cards that I can tell. He's just in it and he's a natural. I kept thinking when he was like, oh, yeah, we're going to do a a live sex act act on stage. Do you remember that time that Saturday Night Live tried to generate a host as some sort of robot man. And he was going to perform a sex act on stage where he was going to touch himself. And uh, I, I was reminded of that joke. I mean, I thought it was okay. The cream cheese or the cottage cheese rather was a nice touch. It was fun. Our next sketch is Samurai Big Man on Campus or Samurai BMOC. It begins at an office in a university. Uh, Gilda comes in as the secretary and tells Garrett Morris, who's playing Jamal, a uh, an activist, a black activist student. Uh, Dean Rynham will be with him shortly. He's currently busy having a live sex act on stage. So this is a nice little tie into the monologue. Buck comes in late and says he was finishing his cottage cheese. And uh, he and Garrett get into a little argument about uh, the black students occupying the old administration building. Buck says he needs to see one more student who he cannot allow to graduate. Belushi comes in as the samurai, big man on campus. Gives Buck an apple. Buck tells him he can't graduate. These two are uh, turn out to actually be frat brothers. They were members of the same fraternity. This was a bit much for me. The stuff with Garrett at the beginning kind of started down a, a road that they didn't follow up. Definitely a weak Buck samurai. Garrett, he misses a cue and I can't understand him. Uh, I do not. I don't think Garrett is with it in the sketch. I don't know. He just didn't seem with it. He was checked out or not paying attention or something. I agree that this was a pretty weaker entry. I really liked the M on his kimono. I thought that was uh, a wonderful touch. Buck and uh, Belushi, when they do this, are they, they certainly have the chemistry, but it's still just the same joke. And I can't believe that Buck agreed to do this after he almost died once. That's right. Yeah, the, the, the sword shot. Yeah. You got to give him props for getting back on stage with that sword and, and with Belushi after the that, that time. Yeah. Yeah. Garrett definitely seemed off, though, at the start. And he was looking really obvious at the cue cards, too, which I, I haven't noticed him being 
overly reliant on before, but he seemed really like he was searching for the words. And I, it felt like this first little bit was tacked on to buy time for a costume change for Buck or something. Like it, it didn't feel polished or finished. Although the way Buck did drop that that cottage cheese line as he was taking his seat felt like totally improv and very like cool, calm and charismatic from him. But yeah, it's just a little long winded. It's good for a chuckle, but to build a whole thing around, it's a little much. You mentioned the M and Belushi's been wearing that M sweater for the girl that was ill. Oh, yeah, because I, I know it was like Monroe College, so I, I didn't even think of the M sweater. Yeah, I wondered if that was related because there's a few times he's doing this like. When I was reading into it, it looked like he had done sort of shout outs in three episodes, but I'm seeing subtle little things that might be shout outs throughout the whole year. Do you remember um, that time that I shat all over Belushi for like two minutes and then you're like, yeah, he's supporting a kid with cancer? Sure do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> time. It was a Broderick Crawford episode, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and then Chili tops it off with the great line. Do you have anything nice to say about Roman Polanski? <laughs> <laughs> We go to a Chiron and it says, fell in love with the right crowd. We now go to Jennifer Warnes and she sings her hit Right Time of the Night from her album, I believe, called Jennifer Warnes. Basically, Jennifer Warnes, I mean, she's got so many songs that our generation just know at the drop of a hat. But I've never seen her perform before. And I, I, she's got a very almost librarian look to her. She was born in Seattle and, and raised in California. She was in a convent for a brief period, got into music just at this point in time and and actually for several years afterwards, was very much just a really talented vocalist who was known more as a vocalist, really, than a than a than a music star, you know, than a than a star. Steady hand, I guess the old wrestling term, hell of a hand, always good in what she does um, and was certainly this was the crest of her popularity i think as a solo performer he goes on to do uh duets with joe cocker up where we belong from the officer and a gentleman then went on to sing the female part for the dirty dancing time of my life with bill medley from the righteous brothers and with bj thomas she did the growing pains theme so somebody who's really been around for a long time but at this point right time of the night was her, her big hit as far as her performance it's it's not exactly what i would like to see on saturday night live but i thought she did a fantastic job at it yeah she's got a nice voice is having a blast yeah. doing it which you know helps sell the performance a little bit but it also feels a little bit like they just had whoever has the biggest hit uh on the radio right now on you know it's like when they had uh, Ashley Simpson on or whatever. <laughs> it's just a uh, here's the the big pop hit going on so we're going to fire it on and it didn't really feel like it fit. The uh the people that book the music on Saturday Night Live for the most part have no sweet clue what is hip or what's going on. They I believe Keith you had mentioned they admitted it. They're just pulling shit out of their old record collection or just whatever's famous and they're throwing it on. I don't think it's done with care. I don't think it's done with any sense of curation for the show. I think it's a mess. I know it gets better someday. But considering the era of music that we're in, and I know I'm a broken record, but uh, this is not it. This is not appropriate for Saturday Night Live. It's it's a drag and it drags down the show and they just keep doing it. They don't get it. They do not 100 percent do not have their finger on the pulse of popular music at the time about jennifer herself she has a beautiful voice i need to mention the highlight of jennifer's career 
uh, for me, comes in the late 80s when she does Famous Blue Raincoat, the songs of Leonard Cohen. When she does, she does First We Take Manhattan. Phenomenal. And of course, Famous Blue Raincoat. Those are my two favorites from the album. Uh, but if you want to hear Jennifer Warren's, go check that out. Yeah, it really does feel like whoever's booking the music is like someone's little brother that they were forced to put up with. It's consistently not congruent with the rest of the vibe of the show. It's it's really strange. Our next sketch. It's the Shower Mike sketch with Bill Murray, uh, written by Bill Murray and Gilda Radner. Bill Murray is Richard Herkeman. He's in the shower and he hosts his own talk show in the shower. With a microphone hanging around his neck, the microphone is uh, soap on a rope. Body wash has totally killed off soap on a rope. So uh, Gilda is his wife, Jane, and uh, Bill asks his wife to sing a song, and she begrudgingly does so. Richard notes that he knows his wife has been cheating on him with somebody, and he just as a surprise to his wife, he brings in Buck Henry. Buck's fully clothed, standing in this couple's shower, um, and admits that he's been uh, running around and actually finds it. Much easier to rent a motel room than to sleep with her in uh, in the house. Bill happily gives her the option of breaking it off with him or to just keep turning the knife and twisting it. Bill then does a version of My Way and throws to a commercial. So a little bit of background on this one. Judith Belushi actually gave Bill the mic, and he just started riffing with it. Um, and it kind of got the ball rolling, and there's a little bit of confusion in some of the literature over whether this sketch or the Nick the Lounge singer sort of came from the, the, the soap bit. I know that Nick had existed before this, um, and, and Nick was its own sort of entity beforehand, but really bumped up when it got on Saturday Night Live. Ultimately, though, when it comes down to Bill Murray settling as a cast member, there's three sketches that are pretty much responsible for, for cementing Bill on the show. It's the shower microphone sketch, the first uh, Nick the Lounge singer, and it's the uh, the new guy speech that he gave at the uh, desk. I really enjoyed this. I thought it was absurd enough that uh, I found it goofy. Gilda was equally odd and had a nice switch when Buck came in from being completely disgusted by her husband to being completely into Buck Henry. I loved her lathering up his suit. just thought this was great. This is one of the first. We've seen a little bit of it already, but this is one of the first glimpses of Bill Murray being the Bill Murray we've all come to know and love. I thought this was pretty darn good, actually. What a weird idea. Yeah, it was definitely odd, um, but that worked for it. It had this really bouncy, slightly frenetic, hectic energy coming from from Bill. I love that Buck was in a full suit, and I kind of noticed, like, in his monologue, he got manhandled and got covered in cottage cheese, then he was exposed to the samurai sword that cut him open. Now they got him in a full suit getting dumped water on in the shower. And it feels like they're putting him through his paces in this episode. <laughs> like They're just finding different ways to make him uncomfortable or something. I, I, I kind of enjoy that because I think he's enjoying it, too. So, yeah, and Gilda was great. This whole sketch is succeeding on the, the back of Bill Murray. Of course, his lackadaisical attitude toward this whole thing. Uh, while he's singing into the microphone. The water was a nice touch. The suit was a nice touch. Everybody was really good. G Gilda wasn't too over the top, which was, I, I think, appropriate for the sketch, because, you know, she can go there, but she, she plays it straight, which I found interesting. But it's all Bill. The sketch is all Bill. You know, it really is a, a star in the making sketch, I think. We now go to the return of the Coneheads. So Jane, as primat, answers the door. To a still wet Buck Henry carrying a large metal pyramid with some hieroglyphs on it. He's an Air Force agent who found the pyramid after it fell from the sky. 
and Beldar Conehead's name and, he, and address is on the side. So Beldar tries to bribe Buck. They say it's a postcard from Remulac in France. Buck says he's been to France. He doesn't know Remulac, and he doesn't think the Coneheads are from France. He's pretty sure they're actually members of the KKK. Dan then admits who they are, and Buck says he'd like to experience flying through space at large speeds. So the Coneheads throw him out of the house. Coneheads realize they have to go to New York and to try to get to Remulac from the Chrysler building. This cuts to some really funny pre-filmed bits of the Coneheads in a convertible driving through New York City, uh, going through the toll booths and getting gas and stuff and getting reactions from actual New Yorkers watching them. We then see some sci-fi uh, clips, some uh, special effects, I suppose, of the Chrysler building taking off and flying through space. It lands on Remulac, and Belushi and Garrett are there as High Master Coldroth. Coney was to be given to the High Master, but her cone has already known the Senso ring. But that doesn't mean they can't just hang around and, and, and chill. Um, Beldar and Coldroth square off and then eventually jump out the window. The pre-tape to me was absolutely hilarious. The reactions that they were getting from people. I really like the space effects. Uh, I'm not really fond of them actually going to space, though. And I think they tried to capture the bottle, uh, lightning in a bottle twice with the jumping out the window bit, uh, which harkens back to the Jack Burns episode where they did that. And it worked really well, but this did not work. This was funny. It was odd. It was a little longer than I'd like. It's the end of the season. The Coneheads are a hit. I see why they did it. Yeah, it definitely felt a, a, a little long in the tooth, but there, was, there were some really good things in here, though. Buck rolling in, still soaking wet, carrying the giant, ridiculous little obelisk thing. Um, I thought was was fun. And uh, the way they threw him out the door, <laughs> it, it very much harkened to like a, uh, the future Fresh Prince jazz getting tossed out sort of a situation. Just he went flying like he did a good, good little jump himself to to lean into it. The whole pre-tape thing was was really fun to see everybody in the background reacting and the like really tense, dramatic, intense chase style music blasting while they just like stop for gas and get change for a toll booth and everything worked pretty well. The bad special effects that's totally up my alley. Like. It was clearly really goofy the way they did the Chrysler building flying through space. When they get there, I mean, it was fine. The way Belushi and Ackroyd were bouncing around, cartoonish, getting ready for their, their conehead fight was pretty neat. But yeah, the, the ending where they jumped out the window really felt like out of nowhere and not in a funny way, just like trying to be jarring. And, and it didn't really work for me. I love the Coneheads, whenever they're on, uh, it's it's generally a home run for me. And for the most part, this is no exception. I think Dan Aykroyd is the default, maybe, when you think of the Coneheads. Jane Curtin is so underrated when she when she does primat like she first of all, her voice. It's so uncharacteristic for Jane to uh, play these bizarre, interesting characters. And she's so good at it. That glazed look in her eye and shit. When they sat on the couch with him and kept the way they just kept looking over at him every time uh, they spoke, I was loving it. I just thought the jokes were really funny in the house when when Buck Henry had that big thing with their address on it and how they just continue to insist that they're just from a small town in France. Lorraine does the slightly more earthling daughter so well. I, I uh, thought it was good stuff. The Chrysler building taking off was fucking hilarious. Jane wearing the sunglasses in the convertible killed me. I place the blame 
for the failure of the second half of this sketch, 100% at the feet of an unenthused Belushi. Terrible mm. in this role as a conehead. God love Garrett Morris, talented man, brilliant singer. We know he has his troubles. He's not here this episode, and I think he really stinks. Uh, his mm. that appearance when he was uh, at the at the campus office, he was a fucking wreck, missing his cues. And this time, I still find him really checked out. Belushi really sucks in this, though. He's not funny. He's not pulling off the voice. He looks terrible in the makeup and the outfit. The whole fight with Ackroyd is really just a really poorly thought out thing. They should have just did the thing with Connie's cone, skip that whole fighting thing. Although I did like Jane and uh, Lorraine. I'm sure I should, I guess I should call them Primat and Connie uh, drinking the beer at the end. I thought it was weird that they left them on Remulac at the end of the sketch. When Coneheads yeah. comes on, I almost feel like it's a sitcom. It's like a mini sitcom now in Saturday Night Live. So uh, I always really enjoy it. I still really enjoy this. And it's just a shame that those two chuckleheads fucked up what i thought was a, a very funny and ambitious sketch with really lousy performances the, the fun of the coneheads is their reaction to earth and earthlings yeah. react to them i guess it was I worth guess. it to try it didn't work though the way it, yeah. it certainly should have yeah. and when you're doing live television i guess i mean there's there's probably a a sense of let's go all in every time so every time it could be the last one so I don't mind mm-hmm. that in a sketch comedy show. Yeah, you swing for the fences every time. Go big. I love when they're ambitious, but somebody needed to talk to Belushi and Garrett. We now got a weekend update. And uh, my first thought was, holy shit, how did she get out of her cone that quickly? Then I realized there was a commercial break in between in the original broadcast that we don't have. But then I still thought, well, that's still pretty friggin' quick. Dean Martin and uh, Frank Sinatra kidnapped Patty Hearst. There was a millionaire who was buried in her Ferrari. There was a microphone was attached to a jockey or actually the horse while it was running the race. And my first thought was, is this Chevy Chase? And uh, more on that later. There's a sight gag of one of the horses throwing a temper tantrum, one of the horses who lost. We then go to Emily Latella, who interviews uh, Congresswoman Bella Abzug. And Emily introduces her as Stella and asks her if she's going to be throwing her cat into the ring for uh, an upcoming election. She builds up a big announcement from uh, from Congressman Abzug, only for the congressman to say, never mind. We go back to Jane at the desk, and Buck Henry comes out to present her with an award. Jane wonders who has won this before, and Buck says uh, she's actually the first to win it. Jane wonders why, and Buck says, well, she's a woman, he's a man, and he's been watching her and her blonde hair and wondering what's under the desk. He also tells her there's a trophy, a rather large trophy he'd like to give her in private. When Jane turns it down, Buck takes the award back. Jane is rather freaked out by Buck Henry. Without a doubt, the highlight was Buck Henry's bit with the award. Most of the the straight-up jokes fell a little flat for me. They were fine. Although the horse throwing the temper tantrum cracked me up pretty good. Not going to lie. It was just the perfect picture of of the horse and the goofy look on its face. Emily Latella and, and Bella Abzug just felt like clunky, like the timing just wasn't there for that. But yeah, when Buck started into his whole bit and like when he started to catch on what he was doing and, and the way he built it and, and, and the amount of 
like just energy put into that performance was a lot of fun. I thought that was good. Jane's final reaction, the way he stormed out and everything felt a little too legit. It was like just a little bit uncomfortable to finish it, which was a little odd. Everything leading up until that I thought was was quite good. I didn't find the the weekend update jokes felt pretty soft this time around. I didn't really get a lot of laughs out of the the usual fare when they cut back from Emily Vitella. I sincerely believe maybe she's just that good an actress. I sincerely believe Jane Curtin fucking hates the Emily Vitella stuff. The look in her eyes when they cut back to her after Emily Vitella was just this is the stupidest shit. But I felt it. I'm telling you, I felt it. Buck Henry was, of course, uh, good. And Jane, you can answer my emails. I'm not like that. <laughs> you have been accused of giving her star of the night purely because of <laughs> her 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 appearance and your attraction on uh, on two occasions, I think, Matt. I like Jane Curtin so much, I'm going to watch Kate and Allie. Kate and Allie was not bad. I don't remember it at all. I don't remember anything from it, but I remember it being on all the time. I think it was my mom's favorite sitcom when I was a little kid. Ahead of its time, I think. You'll get some laughs out of it. Was she Kate or Allie? She was Allie. Susan St. James was Kate. We now go to Rhonda's engagement shower. Gilda is her Rhonda Weiss. She's surrounded by family and friends, including Jane and Lorraine and uh, some of the writers and such. And it's her, uh, it's her, her wedding shower. And they give her gifts, and she keeps repeating the same thing over again. And uh, they give her a melon baller and an egg tweezer and an apron. And each dumb gift gets a, a big reaction from the women. And they all pretty much say for each of them that I never needed a melon baller. And then once I got it, everything changed. They pull out a special box and Gilda gets emotional. And uh, there's a joke about her wishing that they could all get married to the guy she's getting married to. I kind of sum this joke up, this whole sketch, as women writing what they think men think women do at showers, I think is the only way I could put this. I did really enjoy it. Not that it had a lot of jokes in it for me, but uh, I thought Gilda was good in this. Jane's voice was really funny. Lorraine's voice was funny. Kudos to the company of them for these really big but not too big reactions to this. these foolish little gifts. But also, like, there was a realism to this that was was pretty good. Yeah, there's definitely I've noticed uh, over the episodes I've watched, there's these odd little skits that pop up sometime where I don't actually laugh at anything, but I'm engaged the whole time. And and I don't know if it's if the performance, the charisma, whatever it is, because there's not a lot of laughs in this. And and I think your your description of women writing what they think men think women do at these things is pretty on and there's a very restrained over the top element to it but but i've i've met people that are like this you know like i've I've been in rooms with and heard conversations like this before i really enjoyed this it was the the performances were bang on jane's voice every time she started in with that weird thing i can't even describe what it was like but i really enjoyed it yeah it wasn't haha funny but i i really did think that uh, the performances really helped it out. As you guys already mentioned, and as I mentioned earlier, Jane is really whipping out some more interesting things lately with, with the Coneheads and now even with this. My thing about this sketch, Gilda's character of Rhonda, that's totally Mike Myers' character later, yeah? Coffee talk? Yeah, there's definitely elements of that. I, I think the coffee talk is like 
turned up an extra notch. It's like an older sort of New York lady. He does that. The, the hair is the same. She even has the glasses yeah. on her head and uh, she's doing the voice. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that. Mike Myers is allowed to uh, watch old episodes of Saturday Night Live and take inspiration from them. Uh, but it or definitely Bill and Ted. Or Bill and Ted. <laughs> or Dana Carvey's or Dana Carvey's impression of Lord Michaels. Yeah. You know what? We'll talk about Mike Myers, who I do like later down the line. But yes, you're absolutely that is Linda Richmond, a younger Linda Richmond. Yeah, yeah. Although I should note that Linda Richmond, Mike Myers based her on his mother-in-law, but there are a lot of similarities. And Mike Myers was a huge Gilda fan. Yeah. yeah. I actually don't care for Mike Myers, but more on that in five years, I guess. Anyway, I, I was I was pretty much done with the sketch. I thought it was fine. Okay. And I'm not trying to be an apologist again. I, I don't care. Bring on the hate mail. Uh, I really thought Jane made this sketch with her voice. Uh, I find her enchanting. And I'm allowed. It's, it's just I'm, I'm allowed. I'm allowed to be a big fan. Get off my back. <laughs> Next sketch. How your children grow. This is the second edition of this we've seen. Um, in this one, Buck plays Richard Dalton with his two assistants. And he's there to talk about learning disabilities. So Gilda plays a character named Francine who has a, has a condition where she has to put the punctuation in when someone's talking. So when anyone finishes a sentence, she says, period. Lorraine rings a bell. And when Lorraine rings the bell, Gilda gives Jane a cookie. They don't know what Lorraine has. They don't know really what her condition is. Um, he, and he says she's just some Dumbo who, who rings a bell and points to the right. And Buck <laughs> says he's working on understanding Pavlov's dog and disproving it. When Lorraine rings the bell twice and Gilda doesn't give Jane her cookie, uh, she grabs the cookies while salivating, proving, I guess, the Pavlov's dog bit. What a strange sketch. Gilda was amazing in this. They did have some fun with, uh, you know, colon, semicolon in, in a sentence. Some good stuff. There was a flub there that got fixed. I didn't notice it till the second time and through. Gilda covered and then Lorraine covered. Gilda's covered. It was really, really smoothly done. The chemistry Buck has with the cast is off the chart, isn't it? Like he, he especially, especially Jane. But yes, you're right. He's such a net. Like he feels he could just be on the show. Like when he when he's there, it just he really just feels like he's part of the show. And that's really my favorite kind of host, I think, is when they just disappear into it with the rest of the cast. And he does it so well. Uh, Gilda was fantastic here. Uh, I didn't even I didn't catch the slip up at all. Uh, I thought her facial expressions and timing were absolutely hilarious. And Jane is really good. Jane, I really liked her just hoeing down on those cookies while she was continuing to talk. Yeah, great sketch. I loved it. Absolutely love this. Uh, there's like a rhythm to it that just like it felt like it was chugging along, cleverly written. The, the way they played with the the words and the double meanings of the the punctuation words tying in with what Buck was talking about. The performances are all wildly stellar. When they first cut to Jane after mentioning Pavlov and she's got the drool running down her chin and she just like doesn't even respond to it just sells it so perfectly this this felt like a, a David Ives play or something to me the whole idea and the execution this is well above just something that got thrown together in a week I, I thought this was great do we know who wrote this Keith yeah, I couldn't find it this this episode only had one one writer credit although we I should mention Zweibel would have written the uh, samurai this is my, this is a guess, and the guess is Tom Schiller wrote this. It's entirely a guess based on other stuff people have written. Yeah, maybe. I mean, if Ackroyd was in it, I'd be inclined to think him. But this is another one where we got to see the three not ready for primetime women. 
this year, this season, the women have been the backbone of the show um, in a lot of ways. So but we'll talk about that next time we're together, I think. We go to a film. Now, uh, Bill Wegman and Man Ray. Uh, Man Ray is a dog. Uh, and actually, we don't see Bill in this one at all. We've seen Man Ray a couple times, uh, as Chili refers to him, the dog and the owner who were French kissing. Man Ray sleeps with an alarm clock next to him. When the alarm goes off, Man Ray does nothing. This was bad. I know there's a connection there between, I think, Bill Wegman and Gary Weiss that were friendly, but... Uh, no need of this. We know Man Ray can do a few things, um, but yeah, I, I didn't like it. The audience seemed to friggin' love it, but it wasn't for me. Put this dog to sleep. <laughs> there, there's not much to it. Like it's, it's it, it takes a little longer to get to the alarm going off than I think it needs to. You know, if it, if they cut to it a little quicker, uh, maybe it wouldn't have overstayed its welcome so hard. I just I don't know. Maybe I'm missing something. But yeah, the audience seemed to dig it, so that's cool. Man Ray's been deceased for quite some time, too. He has been asleep for like 40 years now. <laughs> <laughs> we now go to Kenny Vance uh, performing the performer, actually, is the name of the song. He's, uh, I mean, he's still working today. He's like almost 80. Uh, founding member of Jay and the Americans. I think he worked with Steely Dan as well. Um, so, yeah, this song, it uh, it's interesting. It's got an interesting sound to it. It didn't really work well for me until about the last 15, 30 seconds or so, which I really enjoyed and kind of wish there was more of that. But, yeah, uh, Kenny Vance will go on to be the musical director for Saturday Night Live for about half a year in uh, 8081. Yeah, I kind of liked it. It had some good energy. It was kind of fun. It was not something I'm going to, you know, go pick up the album for. It definitely fit better than uh, our, our previous performance. I mean, I don't have anything additional to say about the quality of the music on this episode. I will say that I don't like when there's different musical performers on an episode. I like mm-hmm. when they, I like when they figure out, let's have one and let's have them do a couple. This this did nothing for me. It was bland 70s AM nonsense. It, it feels weird when they have two different musical acts on the same show. And I, I also think it cheapens the contribution of the musical guest. Like the, part of what's so cool about having one act go out there and do two things is that nine times out of ten, the act goes out there and does very different things for performance one and performance two. And they have the artistic license to do that. Uh, instead of just going out there, this isn't fucking top of the pops. It's a variety show. I get it. Maybe they're going for variety, but not like this. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I'm not as jarred by that as, as, as you are, Matt, or, or a lot of the third chairs have been. But, uh, I totally get that where you have the opportunity to go out, do your hit, and then go out and do something really different. Yeah. Because... Give me the B side. Yeah, or something you'll never do ever again. You know, like certain bands do almost, you know, standards in concerts. Our next sketch is Lucky Lindy. And in the weirdest bit of uh, casting of the season, Buck Henry plays Charles Lindbergh and Dan narrates. So Buck checks his watch. He's flying across the Atlantic. He says he has 32 hours to go. He's in a cockpit and the crew is likely out right outside tilting it and tipping it. I think the sketch was just like a stream of consciousness. To stay awake, Lindbergh, he talks to himself, he sings to himself. He has a thermos of hot tea with him. He drinks his tea and then he pees in the thermos. He gets lonely and he makes one of them sort of Senor Wenceslas faces on his hands. 
pretends Jesus stewardess and puts on a movie at one point. He reads uh, from spicy stories. There's a reference to masturbating, which Dan says, uh, Dan, as the man says, the plane got jerked off course and everybody laughs. He does this thing where he keeps opening the window to see if he's close to the inky deeps of the North Atlantic. When he gets hit with the water, the third time he checks, it's the land shark. The land shark tells Lindbergh that he's made it to Paris. The only thing that really worked for me, the only things, I guess, were the fact that it was Buck Henry doing all this weird stuff. Uh, anyone else doing this exact same sketch, sketch would have fallen flat with me. And the land shark being there, I was kind of wondering if or how they were going to get Buck to be eaten by the land shark and uh, sucked through these small windows. But they didn't go that way with it. I quite enjoyed it. I mean, I think you're totally right that anybody else is not pulling this off. This is Buck Henry's like main bag, being weird, being a little raunchy biggest laugh i got was like when the land shark was was doing it's like mumbling trying to you know candy gram or whatever and it said amphetamines and buck perked right up i i burst on that one uh the 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 jerk off joke with the spicy magazine too it's lowbrow but I, i liked it i don't know and the water in the face like I was saying earlier, it just seems like they were trying to mess with Buck as much as possible this episode. So every time they splashed water in the face, I had a laugh because they had been building it the whole time. It felt like a running gag the whole way through. It's not masterfully written. There's nothing incredibly clever about the premise or, or the or the script or the execution, but I really enjoyed it. Loved this. Loved this sketch. Uh, there's one part of it I didn't like, but I'll get to that in a second. I, I popped for the land shark. I was excited to see it, and I recognized the voice, and uh, I, I that was a real uh, highlight for me. I don't know what it is. You know how sometimes... You just like something or dislike something rather passionately for no reason. I found Buck talking to his lipstick hand really repulsive. Something disgusted me about it viscerally. <laughs> ah, I was just grossed out. I hated it. And it was part of the weirdness. And there weren't really I didn't like the jokes with the hand per se. But yeah, just seeing that pink smear on his fist. Ah, I, I thought it was really yucky. <laughs> So we now go to a Chiron, and this person worships false TV idols. We then have another musical performance, and it's Howard Shore and the SNL band doing a song uh, Shore wrote called Departure Lounge. I I like a lot of the SNL band's stuff that they get to do. Um, This was not one of their better bits, but it's great to see the band getting this sort of spot in their own limelight at the end of the season. I like the idea of the band getting to to do more stuff on their own, but I don't know. This just felt like it was soaked in its own time, maybe too much. Like it was just, this was very powerfully seventies. This is the kind of thing that would be in a movie now that was parroting the seven. Geez, you thought I didn't like two different musical guests. (laughs) (laughs) This is completely uninteresting. You, what was really interesting is that Chris Parnell is a time traveler. You go back and look at that sax player in the brown leather jacket and you think about Chris Parnell and you will see it. That man is Chris Parnell. If you want music like this that's interesting, may I recommend Frank Zappa's Roxy and Elsewhere from 1974, uh, predating mm. this tepid uninspired music by uh, a few years i thought you were gonna say if you want music like this go sit in an elevator <laughs> <laughs> so we now go to uh mr M- well, michael o'donohue he wonders what it would be like if someone took hundreds of pairs of steel needles 
and plunge them into the eyes of members of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. And the curtain behind him opens up to reveal basically the, the cast and a huge chunk of the crew and the band as Mormon Tabernacle Choir. And they do the, uh, the the screaming and the grabbing their eyes and the writhing on the floor. Really nice to see the, uh, you know, a lot of the people on the uh, cast and crew. Well, not so much the cast, but the crew getting out there on camera. And, uh, and, and I really enjoyed just the absolute chaos of well, probably about 25 people, uh, grown adults, just screaming and writhing on the floor. I thought it was really funny. Yeah, I like the way he sandbagged the um, the intro a little bit. Like, it seemed really long-winded for what the joke ended up being, but in a good way. Like, the, the timing was perfect. Like, he dragged it out just enough so that when it hit, it hit extra hard. And, yeah, just utter chaos. And, yeah, this was this was great. Really dig this Michael O'Donoghue guy. Perfect sketch to end not only the episode, but the season. It was weird and chaotic. Uh, I thought the misdirection was really clever. And I'm, but even though you still kind of feel like, you know, where it's going, but, uh, but yeah, he makes you believe for that split second, like any good performer. Strange man. I, I, I was, I was really into it. I loved the chaos. I like Michael O'Donoghue. Perfect ending to the season. And the Good Knights is the whole cast, band members, some crew folk, uh, you know, cast and crew and writers all out for their, uh, their goodbyes. Yeah, it was fun to see Chevy. That was nice. Yeah, the, the whole, atmosphere after that that big chaotic joke that everyone was a part of too there just felt like an extra level of like camaraderie like maybe there was ups and downs through the season but they're all happy to be there right then and there to see it all so uh let's do the wrap up here the host buck henry no sense going down the uh talking about his strengths and weaknesses so much uh because you know this is number four for buck thought he was extra strong and extra prolific tonight though i don't think we had the highlights like like uh Talkback or the Toilet Seat or Irvington, New York. This may have been his so- most solid episode, top to bottom. Really enjoyed Buck tonight. Oh yeah, felt like like he belonged there, like he's part of the furniture, you know, like he he's he's there every episode, and he was on too. He's not like in a in a lazy way. He, he just he seemed so in his element, like he he was just pumped to be there, having fun with it himself, getting to be weird, getting to take stuff to weird places. Getting a little extra attention from the ladies, which he clearly really enjoyed. He crushed it. This might be like top to bottom, the best hosting job I've seen anyone do in any of the episodes I've watched. Great host. Seamless integration with the cast. I mean, there's a reason they keep inviting him back. Uh, he's just so down for whatever. Uh, great performer. Great charisma. So comfortable. Always love a Buck episode, and this was no exception. So the music, Jennifer Warren's uh, Kenny Vance, and I guess Howard Shore in the uh, SNL band as well. There's talent out the wazoo there, uh, all three. Yet despite that, there was nothing memorable here. Um, not that I hated anything, but I, I, I can't say much more than flat. Yeah, it was milk toast. If you put these three songs together, and that was the soundtrack to on the radio to my drive to school in the morning when I was a kid, that would be fine. But for, uh, uh, you know, the, the, one of the biggest, most cutting edge TV shows in America at the time. Eh, come on, man. That's, this three strikes against whoever's putting this music program together. Like, I'm not saying they don't know what they're doing with the music, but they don't, I mean, they don't a little bit. It's not considered. It's just like, here's some shit we like. And I, I really just do think it's, it's booked poorly. It's curated poorly. Uh, the fact that there's three separate musical performances from three separate acts in an evening, that should tell you something unto itself. But do check out Roxy and Elsewhere by Frank Zappa. 
That was the worst sketch of the night. That that samurai sketch for me did not work. Uh, Belushi was around tonight. I really hated him as the conehead. But mm-hmm. this was just same old shtick for me. The jokes weren't funny enough. It was way too long. That Garrett bit was a train wreck. And, you know, not even Buck's charisma could make me enjoy this. It was a drag. I'm with you. Uh, way too long. Already too long skit with all the samurai stuff. And then they tack on that other bit at the start. And it just went nowhere and was poorly executed. For what the samurai thing is, there's really just one joke. And they're just dragging it and dragging it and trying to use every angle on it they can find. And it doesn't work for me to begin with that well. So too too much of nothing. All three of us are on the same page there. And, and I got to say that this was the only thing really that was there. Like there was nothing even close. And this wasn't hideous like usually when this is when there's an obvious front runner for worse sketch it's because it sucks really bad um and this didn't suck really bad the way other stuff has sucked really bad this just didn't work you know and it's too long don't get me wrong i that thing with the dog was stupid and a complete waste of time i i just i barely even consider it a sketch it wasn't even such a non-entity that it wasn't even in contention and what was the best sketch of the night Uh, Watching your children grow. That might be the best sketch I've seen yet since we started this project. Everything about it. It was a clever, interesting idea. Uh, They nailed the execution. uh, The the time they spent on it was perfect. It wasn't too quick, but they didn't drag it out like they sometimes do with especially the weirder skits. I find they tend to get draggy because they're, they're having too much fun playing in the weird. And and I just, everything about it, just top to bottom and Jane drooling on herself. And she's normally like, she puts out such a composed, like the perfect choice for the person to drool on themselves while shoveling cookies in their face too, to show the snap. Cause she was doing her very composed, you know, TV show host thing. Buck Henry, great in it. Lorraine just ringing a bell and throwing that thumb out and Gilda just nailing her whole weird thing. I got to stop ranting because I could probably go on for another 20 minutes and we got to get on with things. I fucking love this shit. How Your Children Grow is also my choice for favorite sketch of the evening. I do want to add that Coneheads did make me laugh more, but that terrible ending, Belushi and Garrett, really left a a sour taste in my mouth with it. Yeah, and we've got a sweep. It wasn't a runaway for me. Um, there was so much good on this episode, but I did go with this one because of le- maybe less about how much it made me laugh and more about how just good it was as, as a, as a full package, I think. And Matt, that's the second how your children grow to win for you. Interesting. So, uh, who is your star of the night, fellas? There's a lot of people nailing it between Buck Henry and all three of the ladies. I think I got to go with Kilda. She's in almost everything tonight. She does a lot of heavy lifting outside of that one Emily Latella bit. All of her stuff's good. And even like I'm not as burnt out on Emily Latella as you guys. Uh, so I get if, if you're not on board with what I'm putting out right now. But I just feel like she was so strong in the How to Grow Your Children. Uh, she really kept up well with Bill Murray in the shower thing. Mm-hmm. She was all over the place doing a lot of a lot of work. 
Although I don't want to take anything away from everybody else and, and shout out hard to, to Jane drilling on herself again. But yeah, no, just a lot of really strong performances. But I think this is the most I've seen from Gilda. I think I'm going to give it to her. You can hate me now, but I won't stop now. My star of the night is Jane Curtin. I think that she covers up a week weekend update jokes so well that you barely even notice uh, with her delivery and poise her cone head is weird and i just find her expressions in it fantastic and her delivery and holy when she was wearing those sunglasses in the convertible whoever (laughs) had that idea high five that was really her voice in the bridal shower really uncharacteristic and of course how your children grow uh the sketch of the night she was a host uh, Jane Curtin, for me, did it again. I had a rough go with this one. It's the first time I'm on the way. I, I watched it multiple times. Um, the first time through, I didn't have a winner. Um, I had to go back, watch the second time. <laughs> but I also went for Gilda for many of the same reasons Mark did. Could have easily been Jane. It could have, uh, you know, Buck was stellar. I just had my own little rules about that. And this is the first episode where, uh, where, you know, I thought Murray was was pretty strong with his uh, his entry as well, but uh, Gilda it was for me. I know this isn't a debate, and it's not how we structure the show, but I I guess I would like to take the opportunity to make a, a rare comment that I think you guys got this wrong. Uh, I don't think Gilda was good in the shower thing. She was really subdued. She was just there. That could have been anybody. Emily Latella is not interesting. In in the bridal shower. She she was not the the focus of the craziness. She nailed, of course, how your children grow. But so did Jane. And that's really all we saw of Gilda. She's not carrying Weekend Update. She's not broadening her range. She's not growing as an actress and a comic like Jane is. Uh, I disagree with you, lads. And I no, want you know what? Uh, and, and look, it was close with me, but with Gilda, too, you're forgetting Lillian Carter at the beginning. Oh, yeah. Um, Okay, so she does a little old lady shtick for a minute. Jane is carrying a segment on her back. (laughs) Yeah, no, but see, with with Gilda, too, a lot of it for me tonight was was the versatility. And while we did get it from Jane, I was more into what Gilda gave us. I look, honestly, different day, different time. It could have been Jane for me, but uh, but I honestly went with Gilda. And and I'll tell you, I, I normally wouldn't push back Gilda. She just pulled it out for me this time around. Like the music of Paul Simon, we will agree to disagree. I might just give it to Don Pardo. <laughs> Final thoughts. Um, this was a really strong episode overall. I don't have a lot to say that I didn't say in our in our bit by bit. But, I mean, this was a night with, with few exceptions. Everything was spread around nice and evenly. Everybody was game. They obviously enjoy when Uncle Uncle Buck comes to visit. I just thought this was really a strong episode. And I, I think I've become sort of, you know, it, it's almost not fair because going in, I'm like, oh, Buck Henry. And I'm already excited just because it's him. But he's earned that. And I think he deserved it. And again, just another really strong Buck Henry. And like I said, top to bottom, it may have been the best episode he's done yet. And I wound up giving this one a 7.5. Yeah. Um, cut out the music acts and the film and just go on the performance of, of the players and the host. This is one of the most solid episodes I've seen. Um, barring that one, one skip, uh, in the, the Dean's office, which was mercifully very early on. So easy to forget. Um, 
the music did very little to nothing for me. And that, that film was borderline <laughs> nothing in and of itself. Uh, so yeah, I'm with you. I'd go uh, a rock hard 7.5. Fucking rock hard. God. Uh, rock solid is what I meant to say, but <laughs> was... that's not what you said. <laughs> I give I gave this a seven, so we're all pretty close to the same page. I was tempted to really let the music drag it down for me, but there was too much work from the host and the cast and Jane's star of the night performance. And <laughs> I brushed aside the dog and I chastised the music uh, appropriately, I think. I'm tempted to go 6.5, but I'm not gonna. They worked too hard. They earned that seven. So with my 7.5, Matt 7 and Mark 7.5, we <laughs> we wind up with a 7.3, and the Internet Movie Database gave it a 7.3, which makes it the first time we've actually tied the Internet Movie Database. Bam! So it's nice to know that every yeah everyone in the world is on the same page about this <laughs> Buck Henry episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Buck Henry bringing the people together 45 years <laughs> So, uh, folks, we are now at the end of season two. We've got a ton of stats and picks to do over the next uh, couple of weeks, Matt and I. First off, want to thank folks who came and listened, the thousands. You know, it's, it's been uh, it's been a year of growth for us. It's been a lot of fun. Dude, we just did two seasons. High five. We did it, buddy. High fives. Yeah. Good job, guys. Thank you, and thank, and thank you, Mark, for being around for so much of it. Yeah, thanks for having me around. It's a, it's a lot of fun. I love spending my Saturday nights with you guys. Uh, next time, Matt and I are going to do our uh, year-end wrap-up. We've got a few lists, like best episode, best sketches of the year, best host, best music, bits on some characters and impressions. We've got some uh, little bits on uh, just uh, how our numbers stack up and stuff like that. These are all going to be short little episodes that will appear on the YouTube channel over, over the next few weeks. Then we're going to jump into season three. What do you know about season three, fellas? Now, Mark, I know you're back for episode two of season three, but uh, what are your thoughts or knowledge or memories of any season three stuff? Season three, in my mind, is very much the series has landed. Uh, and I know it's already a hit. That's the attitude that I expect from season three. We're hot shit. Well, season three, regarded by many to be the best year of the show. Basically the same cast. We get two new writers. A significant impact on the show as both writers and performers. We do eventually see a departure from the writer's room, a major departure from the writer's room. The show settles on a name that we know and love. A new face joins the update desk. Truckload of memorable characters finally settle into Studio 8H. I'm looking forward to it. There's definitely some characters and bits that I'm like, where are they? But one of my favorite characters either comes in in season three or four. And I think we're going to fight about this character, Matt, because I think you're going to friggin' hate him. But, Sweet. Uh, <laughs> yeah. First episode of season three. Do you know who is the uh, host of that? I don't. It's Steve Martin. Okay. His musical guest is Jackson Brown. Ugh. <laughs> we'll be joined uh, Kevin's going to be coming back to talk Steve Martin with us well I'm looking forward to most of that <laughs> <laughs> and then Mark we see you shortly after that so uh, again Mark thanks so much for uh, everything tonight so Matt and I will be back sporadically over the next few weeks with a short little bits and then uh, after they run out you'll hear us again for season 3 but until then 
We'll be ringing bells and eating cookies here in SNL. <laughs>